You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We are continuing this morning in Joshua chapter 8. We're continuing in Joshua chapter 8 this morning. Uh, Last week, we read about Israel's failure, surprising failure as they went to battle uh, with the city of Ai, which turned out to be a lot bigger than they expected. It turned out that they didn't have God on their side, and they ended up losing. And so this week, we continue uh, in Joshua chapter 8, starting in verse 29. Uh, Please read along silently with me. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear, and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you, and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people for his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Don't go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they'll come out after us until we've drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they're fleeing from us, just as before. So we'll flee from them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you've taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I've commanded you. So Joshua sent them out. And they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night among the people. Joshua rose early in the morning and he mustered the people and he went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw all of this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he didn't know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all of Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and they pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that's in your hand towards Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand towards the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he'd stretched out his hand, they ran and they entered the city and they captured it and they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who had fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them 
So they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side, some on that side, and Israel struck them down until there was not left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive, and they brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness, where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all of Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were twelve thousand, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand, with which he stretched out the javelin, until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Except only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. And this is the word of the Lord. Uh, let's, uh, oh, thanks be to God. Let's, let's pray. Um, dear Lord, Father God, we come before you this morning ready to encounter you as you've revealed yourself in your word. Uh, help us to... Um, hear uh, what you would have us to hear as your people. Help us to uh, see um, how we might apply this to our lives. Help us to submit uh, to this word. Help us to receive uh, this story about a second chance. Uh, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, this story is about a second chance, right? They failed the week before and now they get to come back I guess it wasn't a week for them, but it's just a couple days probably. They get to come back to AI and uh, stage another attack. Uh, so this is their second chance at taking this city. It's also an interesting story. It's the longest battle account in the book of Joshua. It's two whole chapters, right? Jericho is only a couple paragraphs. So uh, it's, there's really something important for us here to see this morning. And I think one of, the, one of the things that's exciting to me is that they get a second chance. I'm reminded of one of my favorite TV shows from a couple years ago, Last Chance You. Uh, fair warning, a lot of language on the show, a lot of co coaches that are not very careful in their word choices. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting TV show, Last Chance You, if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's about football players, and I think they have a basketball season as well who are like division one athletes, right? They're at some big school and they get kicked out due to legal problems or moral failures or more often than not, they just can't read and they can't keep up in college classes and they get kicked out and sent to a community college uh, to try to make it at a community college before getting to go back and play uh, D1 sports again. Or sometimes there's like a little guy who wants to play but couldn't get, make the walk-on team somewhere. And so it's these players last year or their second chance at trying to make it into college sports. Uh, a really interesting and sad TV show because often they fail at their second chance. Uh, but this passage today is, I think, a more hopeful vision of what a second chance can look like for us uh, as God's people, right? In this story, we see Israel, uh, this is really part two to chapter seven. And, and in this part, they have a second chance to retake the city of Ai. They have a second chance to follow God's word, and we'll see how they do this time. Uh, this tells us some really important things as Christians. It tells us that God forgives and blesses his people. He gives us a second chance. It tells us that we're called to, when we get that second chance, to use our brains, to use our strategy, to use our work, right? They don't just repeat Jericho again. They could. 
They don't just do exactly the same thing and rely upon only the Lord's power. Instead, in relying upon the Lord's power, they actually use their brains. These are strategy. And it tells us that we, uh, that, that God's plan is often confusing. It's often scary. He has to tell them, don't fear, don't be dismayed. So let's, let's dig into those. First point, point number one, God's plan is often confusing or scary for us. God's plans are often confusing to us. They're often quite scary, right? They've, you can imagine this story. They failed, men have died here, and now they're called to go back up to this town and to fight again. And they're going to have to split their forces up. And some of them, Joshua and his group, are going to have to camp in the same place that they've already lost a battle. Like this has got to be quite confusing, quite scary for them. And in verse 1, he tells them, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. This is the same thing he tells them back at the beginning of Joshua in chapter 1, verse 9, where he says that, as well as be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, right? This is the name of our series, Courageous. This is sort of one of the mantras of Joshua. Do not fear, be courageous. These are words that they're a command from the Lord, but they're also a comfort, right? Uh, They're kind of a funny command because you can just imagine like a child that's afraid and just saying like, do not be afraid. Like it's not a very comforting thing. And yet the Lord tells us we don't have to fear, not because we trust in ourselves, but because we trust in him. Right? Think about whatever your own uh, things that you might tend to be afraid of are. Right? Things that we tend to fear. The circumstances in our lives. God's plan for us. Or, or seem, sometimes seemingly his lack of plan for our lives. We tend to fear these things. And he says, hey, you don't have to be afraid. You can be courageous when life doesn't go how you would like it to. When your wishes and your desires and your hopes are not met. You can be courageous in me. Uh, Isaiah 43, verse 1, the, the, the command, do not fear, shows up there. shows up in a lot of the Old Testament. This is one of my favorite places, Isaiah 43. We talked about this evening prayer last time, I think. Isaiah 43, 1, he says, Do not fear, Israel, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. It's a wonderful explanation of why not to fear, of why we don't have to fear, right? Our own sort of like worldly advice or human advice says that like our, our attempts to get around fear, my attempts look like this, right? I'm afraid. Come on, Garrett, bear up. I got this. Be tough, right? Sometimes we think, I got this. I can do this. I'm okay, which is just not accurate all the time. Sometimes I don't have it. Sometimes I'm not able to do it on my own. Sometimes we think, I've just got it in myself. If I just believe in myself, then I can manifest it, right? Maybe we don't actually indulge that. But some of us do some of the time. Uh, and that's also not accurate. Like, what, what about picturing it is going to make it happen? Another common response to fear uh, or anxiety is to suppress it, right? To just numb it, to look somewhere else, ignore the, the shadows under the bed. You know, they're n- just pretend they're not really there. And this is also not honest, right? If we just ignore our fear, we don't face it. We're not stopping to be afraid. We're just ignoring it. And, and none of these responses are what the Lord has for us. And says, he tells us, you know, you don't have to be afraid because I have redeemed you. You don't have to be afraid because I've called you by name, you're mine. We rely not on my, our own strength. We rely on the Lord's strength. Like when I'm afraid, I don't have to say, I've got this, because I might not. 
I can trust that the Lord has it. And that's what he calls them to in verse one. He says, be strong, be courageous, do not fear because I, the Lord Yahweh, am on your side. And this is practical, helpful, hopefully comforting advice in the midst of our struggles and trials right now. As we look at our world, as we look at our lives, uh, we can hear from this, do not fear because the Lord is ours because the Lord is on our side. The Lord has redeemed us. He also tells them, don't be dismayed. Verse one, do not be dismayed. It's a weird word, right? We don't often say that, like walk into a room. I am dismayed at the state of this room. Like that's not how we normally speak. Instead, uh, we could maybe plug in uh, scary or confusing, right? That God's plan is often scary or confusing. And we need to be comforted from both of those. He, he says, don't be dismayed when you see things happening that don't make sense to you. Don't be confused when you can't make sense of God's plan, right? God is going to do God's stuff. Uh, he often does weird things that don't make sense to us. For me, this is probably the harder or more relevant part of the passage. Like I'm at least tend to be content with not being afraid, but I'm often confused by God's plan. Uh, or sometimes it seems like there is none, but we know he has one, right? This is Joshua last week in his prayer before the Lord when he says like, where are you, God? Like, how is this good for your name if we're going to lose battles? Like, how are you going to be glorified in this, right? We, we make this same, um, this same request of God. We're confused when it seems that we can't uh, understand his plans, right? God often gives them, gives us confusing commands. The Bible is full of things that maybe we're like, well, does it really have to be that way? Are you sure you said it that way? Like, why? That's so confusing. You know, in Jericho, they had some confusing plans, as Pete pointed out for us. Uh, it was ridiculous, right? They had to go and walk around the city silently for six days. And then on the seventh day, they walked around it seven times. And then they blew the horns. And then the walls came crumbling down. That's really confusing. Why did God do it that way? And why does he not repeat that? Why does he, he do that again for this city? God's plans are often confusing, but here's the encouragement. They're for his glory and his glory is for our good. God's plans are for his glory, not ours. So when we read scripture, this is, this is really hard. We, I tend to read with myself as the main character, right? I tend to read thinking, like, where am I in the story? Am I the Israelites? Yeah, kind of. Am I like the bad guys? Also kind of. Like, you know, I'm, I'm reading with myself in mind. Instead, God says, I'm the main character in this book. This book is about God and about his glory. And absolutely, there's helpful information for how to live in here. But that is not the main point, Right. If I come to this just looking for like five habits for a healthy prayer life, like I might be a little bit disappointed in this story at least. Like they're not, they're not there in an obvious way at least. And uh, so God does things. His plans are for his glory. And the good news is his glory is always for our good. God's glory is always for our good. And he blesses them. We see that even in this passage, verse two, he says, you can take spoil now. You know, that's kind of confusing. Another aspect of God's plan being confusing. Verse 2, he says, you can take its spoil and its livestock. So great. If you find gold bars and you find cows that you like, you can have them, Israel. Now, if you're just reading this passage by itself, that might not be particularly strange. But if you're reading this in the context of last week, you got to be saying like, what? 
That was the whole point of Aiken's sin. The whole point of chapter 7 is that they took spoil. And now they can take spoil? Like, are we playing Simon Says? Like, what, what are we doing here? What's the point? Uh, God's plan is often confusing, and yet it is just that. It is God's plan. Uh, in our lives, uh, we have to submit to, to what God says, even when that's confusing and scary. Um, uh, just think about Joshua here in verses 10 through 15. He goes out and he's camping in front of the city of Ai. He spends the whole night there. It's dark. Maybe it's cold. They're up in the mountains. They're on a battlefield that several of their men have already died on where they've lost. And he is standing there in front of the city saying like, why do I have to be the bait, God? Couldn't I have been in the ambush group? Uh, he's sitting there like, I've got to run away. Like, not, not only is that going to hurt my pride, but it could be physically dangerous as well. Like, they're still engaged in an actual battle, and now he's got to run away. Like, God's plan is really weird here uh, to do this. And he, he's, he's maybe a little bit scare, scary, ugh, scared in the same way that we might be, right? We encounter our enemies we face them like Joshua, staring them down all night long, waiting for this upcoming like test or thing where we're going to be afraid. Like, whatever it is that we tend to be afraid of, personally, we can, we can almost fill in the blank here for AI. Right? As we approach uh, these things that scare us, they get bigger and they get bigger. Stomach gets in knots, right? get nervous. And the Lord says, do not fear. Don't be dismayed. I know my plan's confusing. And yet, don't be dismayed by that. I know it's scary, but do not fear. Not because you got it, but because I've got it. I think one of the best illustrations of God's plans being confusing or scary is, uh, is Jonah, right? Jonah is this unwilling prophet sent to uh, a weird people, right? God calls him to go to Nineveh, which... Uh, maybe not obvious to us today, but Nineveh was like one of Israel's rivals, and they were particularly bad people. Like, they were not a nice city. Uh, and he calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, this like geopolitical rival. So put in the blank whatever geopolitical rival you think we have or you have. Uh, and he calls him as a missionary to that country to go there and to reach those people. And instead of just doing like foreign aid or something nice, Jonah's supposed to go and he says, go to that great city and call out against it for their evil has come before me. So Jonah's called to go to this like national enemy of Israel's and to call them out on their evil. And Jonah's like, I don't want to do that. They're going to kill me. And so he does what he, Jonah does. He runs away, right? He spends three nights and three days in the belly of the fish. He gets belched up on the shore of Nineveh. And then, reluctantly, I guess, he goes and preaches to this uh, nation that he has no love for, to his geopolitical rival, this, this country that he'd, I think, rather be at war with. And what happens? He's even frustrated at this part of God's plan. They repent. He goes and tells them, hey, God has called you to repent. And frustratingly enough for Jonah, they do. Right? This is another confusing part of us uh, as we encounter God's work in our lives. Sometimes the people we don't want to know Jesus do. <laughs> Maybe some of the people that we know are frustrating and you're like, why did you choose to save them? Like, are you serious, God? Like, that's who you chose to shed your blood for? And so Jonah is like, oh my goodness. So, it, you know, if you've read the book, it ends with Jonah maybe not even still being happy with God. Like, ends with him, like, sitting outside the city, mad that Nineveh has come to the Lord. Uh, as a wonderful illustration of God's plans being confusing, if not outright terrifying 
for us. When we're following God faithfully, we're going to often be uh, like asking God, are you really sure this is your plan? Are you really sure that this is the right thing to do? And, and this story in Joshua 8, uh, they're reminded again, yes, do not fear. Don't be dismayed. I've sent you that you're doing the right thing. You know, in our lives, we are called to follow God even when his plans are confusing or, or that we can't see them, even when that is scary, right? God's word is confusing in a lot of the things it says, right? Why does he have us hold uh, some of the ethics we hold? It would be much more convenient if we didn't. Uh, why does he, like, so harsh, you know? Like, even in this passage, there's, there's a lot of death. Why does he treat the Canaanites in this way? Uh, there's, you know, the, the bigger one that I think a lot of us wrestle with at some point is theodicy or the, the question of evil, right? How does an all-powerful God who's good allow evil to exist in the world? You know, most of us have asked that question or wrestled with that at some point in our lives. And God's plan's confusing. It's scary. Like, how can that be? There's a lot of answers. Maybe none of them is satisfactory as we'd like. Um, and yet, even though God's plan is scary, he calls us to follow it. Even though we know we might be rejected uh, from our friends because of what Scripture says, we know that when we pray, we might not always get what we want because his will is going to be done. We know that, uh, like Jonah, we might actually succeed at something we don't want to succeed at. Uh, God's, God's uh, plan is confusing and it's scary, and yet it's also the Lord's. Uh, in this passage, it's successful because it's what God has for them to do. Uh, point number two, as we follow God's plan, we're going to have to use our own strategy and use our work. We're going to have to use our brains and our bodies uh, for his glory. We use our, we're going to have to still use strategy and work, right? What's so interesting to me, one of the things that's so interesting to me about this passage is that he doesn't just repeat the ritual of Jericho. Like they could do this, you know, God could just get rid of all the Canaanites with like thunder and lightning or something or Sodom and Gomorrah. He could do whatever he wants to them. He could have the Israelites march around every city in Canaan and then tear the walls down. But instead he says, no, I'm, you guys have to work. You're going to have to use your own strategy. You're going to have to do this. Uh, you figure it out with your own brains and accomplish it with your own bodies. Uh, he tells them back in verse 2, I believe. Yeah, go and lay an ambush against the city. But he doesn't give them any more specifics about this. Verses um, uh, 18 through 23, he, Joshua outlines uh, his land of... Oh, that's the wrong verses. Sorry, verses uh, 3 through 9. Joshua outlines his plan of attack. He tells them what they're going to do. You know, they're going to set an ambush behind the city. They're going to go camp in front of the city. This will pull everyone out of Ai. And once they're out, the ambushers are going to come in and burn the city, and then they'll meet in the middle and kill everybody. And the only part in there that actually tells them, like that says the Lord said this specifically, was to receive the blessings, to, to take the spoils. So like God tells them to ambush, but he doesn't tell them how to do it. You know, and this is, I think, a really uh, interesting and encouraging part of this passage. It's the longest battle sequence in the whole book of Joshua. You know, with last chapter, we get two chapters devoted to AI. Jericho only gets like a couple paragraphs. And so, like, what is he trying to tell us? Um, right, right? He's, he's showing us that 
Israel and us as God's people must continue to use our strategy and our work as we accomplish God's plans for his glory. We have to continue to use our brains. We have to continue to use our bodies as we serve uh, the Lord. Um, you know, we, we, one question that's always helpful to ask when reading scripture is, what would I miss without this chapter, without this passage? It's a really good question. What would I not know about God? Or what would I not know about how to live? Or what would I not know about Christ? What would I miss without this passage? And, and one of the things to me that stood out uh, in thinking through this one is that it gives us a really helpful picture, not only of a second chance, but of God's people carrying out this really elaborate plan uh, in their context for his glory. Um, it, it shows them thinking about the terrain, they think about where the city is, they think about their own numbers, and God tells them to set an ambush, but then they have to come up with like, well, how do we do that? Where do we go? Where do I put these people? How many go where? And it gives us lots of details that I'm tempted to maybe just skip over, but it tells us in its own unique way that we have to continue to use our strategy. We have to continue to use our heads as we try to figure out how to reach the world today, how to, how to carry out God's mission today. You know, luckily our mission is quite different than theirs. Theirs is kill all these people. Ours is reach them with the gospel. Uh, and yet uh, we have to, we still get to use our brains. We're not called to just carry out ritual. You know, they could have just, again, done the Jericho thing, walk around the walls all week, but they don't do that. Instead, they, they figure out a new plan. We, we could continue to just sort of blindly follow, well, what did the church do last year? We're going to do that again this year. What did the church do 50 years ago? We will continue to do that this uh, year. What, the, what has the church done 500 years ago? And there's an important place for tradition uh, and church history, absolutely, especially as we understand our convictions. But we don't need to be bound to the practices of, of what we do. We, we instead want to stay firm in our convic convictions, but be always relevant and culturally appropriate in what and how we do things. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing to think through in each of our lives, right? If you've been called to bear God's witness, to, to reach your friends and your neighbors and the world for him, if you've been called to live faithfully as a Christian today, how do you do that contextually? How do you do that in your, uh, in your neighborhood, on your street, in Marana, in Tucson? How do we do that? Faithfully, we're, we're still called to use our brains, to use our bodies, as we answer that question. Uh, maybe as an example of this, think about First and Second Thessalonians. So, kind of a weird example here, but in First Thessalonians, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica a lot of information about the end times. He tells them a whole lot of information about the new heavens, the new earth. He tells them a whole lot of helpful stuff. And what biblical scholars think is that a lot of those people. Uh, heard that information and got so excited about Christ's return that they, they thought it was extremely close at hand. They thought that, oh my goodness, Jesus is coming back like next week. And so what I need to do is, I, well, I don't need to work. I don't need to continue to go to work. I don't need to clock in. I don't need to plant any more crops. I don't need to like invest anything or buy a house or do any of those things because God's coming back like tomorrow. And, and to answer that, um, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, uh, he tells them, don't just indulge idleness. 
This is one interpretation of this passage. You could just read it as its own. But I think this is helpful to understand it. They thought so, they were so assured that God was immediately coming back tomorrow, right around the corner, that they stopped working altogether. They stopped investing in their lives, in their future, in their society, in their city. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he says, you know, don't indulge the brother walking in idleness. That's not in accord with what you've received from us. You yourselves know how to imitate us because we weren't idle when we were with you. He goes on to tell them all this information. And it's a really interesting chapter about how work relates for us today as believers. Uh, but as we, as we think about this, you know, this is a wonderful reminder that we are called to not just blindly follow traditions and rituals, but to use our brains for God's glory. Uh, how can we apply this? You know, we're called, what are you called to today? Uh, wh what are your passions and your desires? We know generally that we're all called uh, to go and make disciples. We know that we're all called to, to reach the lost. But what are your specific areas, right? Things that maybe you're passionate about. Uh, maybe you love kids. Maybe you love uh, caring for physical needs and homelessness. Maybe you really are concerned about justice. Uh, I don't know what you're concerned about, but we're called to be discerning that and then to be thinking individually and as a church, how can we do that? How can we accomplish the Lord's mission, not just following some blind pattern from before, but like in this passage, setting up an ambush and planning and using our strategy for God's glory, right? God continues to use our strategy and our work we are not just called to uh, blindly, blindly pray uh, and not do anything real. We're instead called to continue to, to follow the Lord's commands uh, today. We're continue, called to continue to use our brains uh, as we try to faithfully live that out. Our third point is that God forgives his people. God forgives his people. He gives them a second chance. This is maybe the most obvious picture of grace in the passage, right? We're always trying to find Christ in the passage. It's not through like counting out C-H-R-I-S-T or something in letters, but finding uh, God's pattern of redemption, even in these hard Old Testament passages, right? How do I find the gospel in a story where they kill 12,000 people? Well, here, here it is. God gives his chosen people, Israel, a second chance. God is giving you, his chosen people of the church today, a second chance. Each of us individually, a second chance. You know, this passage isn't as much about people taking a second chance by sort of committing to Christ. It's instead more relevant as uh, one for, for believers, for God's people who still know that they have fallen and messed up before the Lord. This is all of us as we fail or we uh, fall, as we actively mess up, or maybe we just need another chance at something in our lives. Um, you know, Israel has messed up last, in the last chapter, right? They all sinned through Achan's sin, like Adam. They all messed up because he coveted, he wanted uh, material possessions over what the Lord had promised them. And so now the Lord is giving them another chance to go and take this city of Ai. Um, another chance uh, to trust in his will um, and to, to get this right this time. And, and this is us too. He is absolutely giving us another chance. Uh, he continues to give his people chance after chance 
after chance. Uh, each week, we have a call to confession again and again and again as a reminder that I have sin I need to confess before the Lord, and he would love to give me another chance. Unlike that TV show, it's not our last chance. Uh, we continue to receive grace over and over and over again. He gives his people, uh, he forgives his people. He also gives them a blessing. In verse uh, 27, reminds us again that they took, they got to take plunder. It says, only the livestock and the spoil uh, of all that city uh, Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he had commanded Joshua. He gives his people a blessing, which is particularly highlighted given the last passage where they couldn't take anything. You know, the part of the problem last time was that they didn't realize that their wealth, their blessings came from the Lord's, that all of their material possessions are actually God's. And it's not that we get to tithe and we give God a tenth of what we have, but that God gives us everything we have and we get to give him back something. Uh, God owns all of our stuff, all of our lives are his. And he reminds them of this with this blessing of material possessions. He says, in AI, if you do, you see a nice cow, you go ahead and take that cow. You see a nice bar of gold, you, you grab it. Uh, he is blessing his people. I'm not hopefully turning into a prosperity gospel preacher here. I need some longer hair if I was going to go for the Joel Osteen. But, uh, you know, he does say there's a blessing. There's a real, in this passage at least, there's actually even a financial one for his people. And I think that this is to remind us again that all of our gifts come from him. All of our gifts come from the Lord. Uh, they're never because we were just so amazing that we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps. Um, we were awesome. It's always because God has given us uh, everything that we have. It's all grace from him. One more note about a blessing in this passage. Verse 29, the very end of it. Another kind of gruesome, fun Old Testament reminder. Uh, he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree. They threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city, and they raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. How on earth is this a blessing? Uh, because it's a reminder to his people. It's a reminder to God's people. This is the fourth or fifth pile of rocks they've made in uh, Joshua that stands there to this day to remind his people of what he's done. They're going to make another one in the next couple of verses um, as they make an altar. God continues to leave reminders. He's, he's left a reminder to us through his word, but he continues to leave reminders for us of his faithfulness and his presence in our lives. Even as we fail, even as we, we mess up uh, or we just need a second chance, he has left reminders in your life to point you back to him and his goodness. He's left reminders in your life to tell you, hey, you are mine. I've called you my name. I've redeemed you. You don't have to be afraid. God continues to leave reminders for his people as a blessing. Um, as we think about how to apply this fact that God's given us forgiveness to our lives, uh, maybe we pause and just ask, like, do I feel that I've messed up? Do I feel that I need a second chance? Some of you are like, yes, I need a second chance. The other ones are like, I don't, it's not really me. Those are the people who probably need it more. Uh, but uh, as we think about the fact that we need a second chance, uh, this could be interpersonal, right? It could be between each other. It could be between us and the Lord. We might need a second chance forgiveness, just even in like a non-sin sort of way, but like we just messed up some more basic things in our lives. And yet God continues to give us chance over chance uh, to live how we should, right? He gives us 
day after day to continue to grow, uh, to continue to use our brains and our bodies for his glory, even as his plan is scary. Uh, to, to point us to Christ, Christ is the ultimate second chance. Christ is the ultimate grace upon grace upon grace. As we think about that word grace, you know, it's a, a gift received that we didn't expect. It's an unexpected uh, gift to each of us that, that we should be chosen as God's people, that we should receive the blood of Christ. And he gives us reminders of this, right? He has a physical reminder of a spiritual reality. He does this with the pile of rocks in the passage. He does it uh, for each of us day in and day out as we continue to receive grace in Christ, as we continue to receive second chance and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances, God loves to forgive his people. And he doesn't just want us to feel bad about that either, right? Romans 8.1, overquoted, but still great. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just free us from condemnation, but he frees us from guilt and shame as well. As he gives us a second chance, he doesn't just want us to focus on our sin. That wouldn't be focusing on grace. Instead, we're called to focus on his forgiveness and his glory and his amazing, amazing blessings that he gives to his people. So as we see this passage, uh, it's not just their last chance. It's another one. It's not just a second chance for Israel. There's a second chance for each of us, for you and me today. As we come before the Lord, uh, we know that his plans can be scary. They can be confusing. Uh, the situation in life that we're in right now in the world can be scary and confusing. And yet he says, you know, I've equipped you. I've given you the gifts and I've given you my blessing. Go and use your brain. Use your body. Like figure it out. Use some strategy. This amazing, exciting opportunity for us to uh, be creative um, as the Lord would have us. To be creative. Joshua is extremely creative to, to serve the Lord here. And we get that same calling. And then he reminds us that even then when we mess up, he gives us multiple tries. Uh, he gives us grace upon grace upon grace. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.